Welcome back to the Joshua Shaw audio experience. Firstly, thank you for giving me a bit of your attention. I'm honored you trusted me with it, and I promise to return the favor by giving you a ton of edutainment value back. I want to welcome you back to another episode of what I've branded Pivotal, since these interview-style segments tackle impactful CPG industry topics and lessons from the business leaders that live it every day. My guest on today's episode is an absolute gem of a person. We always have a blast when we talk shop, so I was excited when I finally persuaded him to join me on camera. Most recently, Nomit Shah was the CFO that quarterbacked on its exit to Unilever, but you'll also hear him speak from the perspective of being a highly successful startup investor and advisor. Nomit shared his thoughts around the deepening role that CFOs need to be taking on during periods of uncertainty and the challenging marketplace. We also discussed what should go into the decision-making process when CPG brands are choosing a capitalization strategy. Additionally, I asked Nomit to provide insights on common kind of landmines and missed focal areas that CPG brands run into when they're readying themselves for a liquidity event. These are just some of the fascinating topics we covered, but before we get started, I wanted to give a quick shout out to the sponsor of today's content, Parker. Whether your e-commerce brand has a talented CFO in place or you're still in the kind of jack of all trades CEO phase, Parker is the ultimate all-in-one financial solution that allows you to take financial data and use it to influence operational decision-making and strategy. As a strategy consultant working with some of the fastest-growing CPG brands in the industry, I love integrating Parker because it allows my clients to scale ads without shutoff risks and purchase inventory in bulk with flexible payment terms and higher limits. This is all possible because Parker gives you a limit up to $5 million dollars and net 60 days to pay back all transactions with no interest or fees. They basically 4x the credit duration of Brex or Amex cards at no cost. If you're interested in learning more information about how Parker makes e-commerce growth easier, head over to getparker.com or reach out to me directly and I'll connect you with the relevant team member to set up your $500 sign-up bonus for this month. But without further delay, here is my recent conversation with the finance operations and strategy expert, Nomit Shah. Well, I'm super excited today to have my guest on, Nomit Shah, and for kind of like a few reasons. One, he's a hell of a guy. Uh, every interaction that we've ever had conversation we've ever had. I've always left thinking like, this is a good dude. I like, I like how he's challenging my thoughts, getting me to think differently. Also just the way we kind of jam through a bunch of things. So thought super excited for that aspect. Secondly, the, I think we both are kind of like growth uh, in terms of like how we approach things. It's definitely from like a growth mindset, definitely from an operator mentality. Um, I think we have complementary type of skill sets. I think like you live at the intersection of 
be it like accounting, finance, operations, and strategy, which we'll kind of like talk about a little bit later of like how that's really the, I guess, the quadrant of a great like modern CFO. Um, and then kind of finally, why I'm super excited is that like if you were to search his name on like any search engine or, or even YouTube, you wouldn't see like a shit ton of, of of guest appearances or like anything like that, which I think is the kind of guest that I love because you have a ton of stuff to say, but for whatever reason, you like to stay in the shadows and, and not, not share those types of things. So I think like, you know, super impressive things you've done in your career. I think we'll probably talk through some of it most recently and maybe most impressively. I don't know how you rank things, but I think being kind of the CFO and the quarterback of that end-to-end -end process of the mergers and acquisition that happened when you were at Onnit and with Unilever, I think is super impressive. And I think I've said enough. I mean, I think I think I'm excited. I'm excited for to have you on. So, no, appreciate you joining me. Appreciate you taking some of your time out of your schedule to uh, talk to my community. No, I appreciate it. I think you know it's funny. I think the nature of most finance and accounting professionals is a little bit more understated, and so that's probably why. Uh, we're not frequently on, on a lot of these types of forums, but big fan of what you're doing for the community and just the, the knowledge that, that kind of comes out of these types of conversations and a lot of the, the information that you do put out there. So I want to talk through what I was kind of mentioning around, I guess, like the deeper role that the CFO is playing within the CPG industry or just CPG brands as a whole and have everybody kind of understand how that is evolving both, you know, pre-pandemic, but I think the last two years, there's been a lot of, um, I guess, evolution in how the CFO and how important that role is within a company. Absolutely. And I think even for me, the role has evolved for how I think about it. I think traditionally, people think about CFOs and sort of that organization, those teams as you know, gatekeeper of the financials, the results, you know, sort of a steward of, of governance and fiduciary of the business and budgets and forecasts and tax compliance. And those are all still, I think, applicable um, to how, you know, to how and what a CFO needs to be focused on. But I think to your point, the last two, three years has been the most challenging, I think, business environment most of us have ever been in. And not just because, you know, things are going crazy with supply chain, with advertising and marketing, recruiting and hiring, but the environment itself is so fluid. So it's not even like, Things are changing by the by the week or the month. They're changing by the hour, by the day. And I think that shift has forced CFOs and their teams to kind of be much more entrenched within the business. I think before, even from my own experience, just coming up when I made the transition from consulting to kind of corporate finance, you you kind of felt like you were kind of up there in the in an ivory tower a little bit, like looking at things. You were really a glorified reporting machine and really talking about the past. Whereas today, you know, if you're functionally leading marketing teams or you're leading operations, you need your CFO and his team or her team right there with you making decisions because you're making real-time decisions around where you're investing money, what you're doing strategically, how you're executing. And so I think like that, that baseline idea that the CFO and, and their teams are really business partners has become way more reinforced in the last two, three years. And I think part of it is being driven by the fact that, you know, especially if you touched on this, but I think I've been in a lot of high growth environments. So you're working in businesses that are really instinctively run really quickly. 
you're making fast decisions, but you want to really sort of start to turn that dial and introduce a little bit more data into those decisions, put a little bit more of an analytical framework around that. And I think in order to do that, you have to be in those meetings that are truly cross-functional across the business, right? And so in a, in a typical consumer business, that's everything from SNOP to marketing to new product development. I think, you know, people in, in finance and accounting are finding themselves in settings that historically people assumed, eh, they're, they're probably not a stakeholder. Like, why do they care about the latest flavor of protein that we might be putting out? And it might be because, hey, guys, there's, there's competition here or this flavor, you know, the trends aren't that great or whatever, whatever the case is. I think there's much more stakeholder accountability coming from finance and accounting. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. I think the other thing is, you know, I, I think there's been an evolution in terms of how we think about data. Um, when I was coming up, again, I think the gripe was always there's not enough information. And I think now there's an overabundance of information out there. So you're really having to distill for your business partners, like, what are the things I should care about? What are the KPIs? What are the metrics? And I think a really good finance and accounting function helps to kind of standardize that across the business. And so you're all talking the same language because I think, again, you're, you're the one kind of connecting the dots. And if I'm in marketing, I may have no idea that something that I'm doing here is negatively impacting or constraining supply chain and, and, and operations, or you might be in tech doing some development and you'd have no idea that that's affecting the website, the D2C website. Um, so I think there's, there's just an inherent obligation now to be much more of a facilitator and connector of the dots across the business. And I think the last thing, I think like a really overlooked thing, I think 10, 15 years ago, but now a much more like prevalent situation is 10, 15 years ago, if you were implementing SAP or Oracle or an ERP, I think tech was really leading that. And I think what I've seen, and including my own most recent experiences, it's really led by finance and accounting because, again, you're looking at the overall footprint to determine what's going to happen when the business scales to 25 million, 50 million, 100 million, 200 million. And so that's going to impact how we hire, how we design the business, the operating model. And so systems and you know the ERP footprint and all that, I think, again, really falls into the court, I think, of the CFO in terms of thinking about how am I going to support the growth of this business? You're always going to react, in my opinion, a little bit. Um, you don't want to be, I think, over-investing in finance and accounting. You want to invest in sales and marketing and, and growth. Um, but I think if you have a lot of those things that, we, that I touched on in terms of partnership, data-driven, you're, you're introducing a lot of those frameworks into the business, you're going to win in today's environment. But yeah, you're right. It's a big shift um, from what I think the traditional role of the CFO has been viewed. Some of that stuff that you mentioned, especially with like data, and you kind of alluded to this about how now, in a way, a lot of companies are kind of drinking from the fire hose. Um, you know, just there's so much. Like it went from you had to wait until those reports came out every month, and then you were yeah. working off of really old data, and you're like, okay, how do I make decisions off of this? Where now there's so many different solutions, I think, that are giving you real time that. I found at least in, in some of the clients that I've worked with that, that few of them get bogged down. Um, and there's a big wild swing. I mean, there's definitely some that, that are extremely, um, I guess, detail oriented in terms of the data, even at a very like early stage of their business and maybe yeah. some to a detriment, um, you know, just focusing on way too many of the details over, you know, the, the kind of the bigger, uh, vision. 
And then on the flip side, you have some that are just like still very intuitive, like flying by the seat of their pants. Um, and I'm sure you've come across some of those as well, but wanted to maybe get your thoughts on like how should you know founders approach like the level in which they are you know looking at that stuff at at each kind of stage is there like when you're working with anybody do you have like a hard and fast kind of rule or is it really um i guess dictated on like how the skill sets of the team is you know number of kind of other variables yeah i mean i think i think it's definitely subjective right i mean I, it, where i was most recently was definitely initially very instinctive business. And I think that's what worked for the business. I mean, it was, it was very brand, I'm talking about on it, obviously very brand for business, powerful marketing, incredibly engaging experience with the customer, great products. Um, and so it's hard as coming in as a finance person, it's hard to question that success because the instincts work so well. So it was really about introducing data and frameworks and information that wasn't going to bog them down and make them like, freak out about looking at too much information, but how can I make those instincts even sharper, you know, and, and sort of, you know, evolving that, that use of data and information. Cause to your point, there's, there's probably an overabundance of it and too much analysis leads to paralysis, right? Then you're not going to be able to make a decision. So I think it's, it's really kind of, you know, almost spoon feeding that, 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 that graduation into deeper and deeper insights. If you try to do it all at once, I think that's going to be really tough and you're going to just be distracted and overwhelmed. Whereas, Hey, let's pick, maybe it's pick an area of the business. What is the area of the business that's keeping us up the most at night? And let's really try to hone in on what are some things we could do there to make us feel better about our visibility or how could we do better there? Or let's level set on the KPIs and metrics we want to establish for this part of the business. Like maybe we have, we have problems with managing inventory and supply is really difficult. We're always out of stock. So let's work on, you know, what do those targets need to be? Is there an opportunity to, to look at our lead times and, and, and consolidate some of those? So I think like there's definitely a little bit of bespoke approach to businesses. Like you can't go in. I think some of it is the appetite too, right? The appetite of the business. I find that most people really want to be successful at what they do. And depending on, on their mindset, they either need a lot of information to kind of reinforce that or just a little bit to know that, I'm killing it, man. I'm doing exactly what I need to be doing. Or, hey, I see that this is kind of going sideways. I need to change. But I think it's it's definitely subjective, in my opinion. And, you know, again, maturity of the business, life cycle of the business, what's going on with it. But I think you have to kind of find the pockets where you can maybe stagger that in a little bit. I really loved also the point you made about the CFO kind of taking and putting all of the dots together, like being that person that can understand from A to Z, when we make a decision in the business, how is that going to impact both upstream and downstream? Um, and I think that depending on you know which which niche I think of the CPG industry we're talking about, um, that can be ex like more valuable than maybe other ones. Um, and I'm kind of pointing towards maybe some of that sports nutrition mindset where like the founders tend to, and, and I don't mean any disrespect to anybody listening to this, is that, you know, maybe don't come from like an Ivy League school or some MBA uh, program that's like the most elite thing where if they come in there maybe with, you know, some aspect of passion or vision or something. And, and they're lacking, I think, a lot of what you're mentioning about some of that stuff that can actually tie everything together and, you know, make that intuition actually be magical, actually make sense from a profitability Kind of standpoint and i think this kind of like transitions a little bit into something else i kind of wanted to ask you was around 
you know, the conversation or what's going on right now with, you know, growth at all costs or, or profitability and kind of what's happening and, and maybe how that even kind of rolls into the idea of, you know, bootstrapping or, or venture backed type of an organization and, and CPG industry. And like, I know you've been on both sides of the coin, I think on that, both from like the advisor um, and or investor side of things. So no, there's not one solid, easy answer for all of this, but I do want us to kind of talk through some of that kind of decisions because right now that's definitely like in the zeitgeist. That's like, you know, for, for whatever oh, yeah. reason, it's like, you know, profitability didn't seem like it was all that important until recently. Again, it, it goes through cycles, but like right now, all of a sudden it's like, you better be profitable uh, because capital is going to be very tough to come by. No, hundred percent. I mean, it's, uh, it's crazy. You know, I, you know, I worked in Austin the last four years and Austin is one of the hottest markets in the country for startups, high growth businesses. And, you know, I've shared this with people. I felt guilty almost uh, for four years as I was logging into LinkedIn daily and, you know, seeing people going out and raising massive funding rounds, bringing in lots of money into the business. And I think, look, that can be right for a lot of businesses. Um, and I think the idea of what's right for one business may not be right for another business. I think that that definitely holds true. And I think some of this is, you know, to, to answer your question around founders and CEOs and, and maybe people that, just, you know, that maybe did not have necessarily a uh, big CPG background before going in and starting their own venture. I think it does become tough because you're looking at this and you're kind of thinking, this is the playbook to growth. And I think one of the conversations I frequently have, especially since, since, uh, since I, you know, stepped away from on it recently has been with some of the companies I work with and, a lot of them are, you know, confronting the idea of do I raise, you know, do I go out and raise growth capital or do I try to kind of bootstrap it, if you will. And I think that the answer is a little bit of what are you really going to need do with this money, right? I think like more often than not, when you go through the exercise of what's the money for, how much do I need, why am I doing this, at least in consumer, I'm finding a lot of the answers are inventory, working capital, marketing. And I think 15, 20 years ago, there was limited optionality out there for where you could get that financing. I think here in 2022, there's so many great avenues to get that capital for your business where you, you don't necessarily need uh, to go out and raise equity capital. You can go out and get alternative lending. Uh, there's other debt financing out there that doesn't involve the banks. And you can always, at the end, go work with your banks. So there's good optionality. But I think the other thing that, that's often a misconception is with that growth capital, you're not going to necessarily always get the support you need on the execution side, meaning you're still going to have to run the business. So if you're a CEO or a founder and you don't feel great about your skill set in certain areas, I think the question you should be asking yourself prior to maybe raising capital is, do I have the right people in place maybe in some of these areas? Do I need to potentially think about a board of directors? Because I think a lot of the, the perception is, is that, going to get this growth equity from an awesome private equity fund or an awesome venture capital fund. And then they're just going to, they're going to take us on this ride. And that's not the case. I think the the execution still falls on the operators of the business. And so you may have to shore up some of those things. So I think awareness becomes sort of the big thing that, that you know, as a founder and a CEO, you got to look yourself in the mirror a little bit and find out like, all right, maybe it's time to kind of step away from this area. You know, I'm, I'm really good at sales but I need to bring in maybe a head of performance marketing or head of marketing, or maybe, you know what, I shouldn't be managing supply chain. You know, it's getting really complicated right now. And 
my best use of time is here. And so I think with those decisioning around capital and what I'm going to do with the money, I think the other question that I don't think is asked often enough is, you know, do, is there stuff I can be delegating or are there people that can help me outside of the construct of, of, a, of a private equity investment? Thinking about when you just kind of mentioned around, there's some work that needs to be done usually before you are approaching that kind of decision on raising capital or, or going out and trying to get some type of financing. And I tend to really agree with you because I, I always kind of look at when that decision gets brought up and it usually gets brought up very often. And, and I always say, let's kind of look at your organization and kind of make sure that this gasoline is actually going to fuel the fire and not put it out. Um, yes. You know, and it's looking at, to your point around some of these gaps, like, you know, they want to be here and they're, you know, over here. And then there's this big kind of gap in between. And that could be a number of things like human capital, or it could be something that's, you know, awareness could be product, could be all these types of things, but you have to really understand how all of those things are going before you actually go and, and maybe go out and raise capital. I think that there needs to be a lot of thought that gets put in before raising capital. And you kind of mentioned before, it's like, I think because the echo chamber of social media, or it's just looking at, you know, TechCrunch or any of these other kind of yeah. aggregators of news, you think, holy crap, every single person's raising tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Like I have a better X, Y, Z than them. Why can't I go do this? Or why shouldn't I be doing this? Why am I putting all of my risk on the table by, you know, kind of funding yeah. this myself? And when there's a lot of obviously people that would love to probably fund this, but unfortunately I think that gets, you get caught up in the wrong way of thinking. Um, and you ultimately are, are not fixing, you know, the business before you go out and do that. Because you kind of mentioned like, if you were to get one of these large, you know, consumer investors, you initially probably think, well, they've done this probably a lot. They know what they're doing. Look at their track record. They're going to come in and really help me do a bunch of these, these things. They're going to be a strategic investor. They're going to really help me. Yeah. And I think more times than not, the expectation level of what you think you're going to get does not ever get to that point. I think it's, you know, there are very helpful, you know, VCs and, and things like that, but I don't think the, it ever really ever meet, meets the founder's expectation. I think they think that these like magical people are coming in and just like putting their wand on, you know, all the problems because they're throwing money at it and they're like, we're good to go. No, I, I agree. I think you, you have to have that conviction regardless of whether you get the capital or not. And I think that's the, that's the difference, I think, between people that make that situation work or that scenario work where you're bringing in that capital to add fuel to that fire, or it's, I really don't know what I'm doing. I think this infusion is going to solve my problems. And I think that's where I think you see a lot of that going, you know, the, the wrong direction. The other thing too is, I mean, I think there's just been this obsession over valuation and, and all, a lot of these things in the early stages. And I, I frequently will tell people that I work with or companies I'm involved with, don't get hung up on that right now. I mean, I think we've, we've seen a lot of that in, you know, situations now in the last couple of years, where people are going back out to market, raising flat rounds, they're down rounds. Um, there's, there's other things you need to look for when you are going to go that route. Let's say you've decided, look, we've bootstrapped it as far as we can go. We have to go this route and here's why. And you feel really good about the, the reasons for doing so really focus on the fit because to your point, if there's things that you know you want to do, whether it's retail expansion or you want, you're really thinking about, you know, heavy R and D in a particular area, commercializing certain things, 
you want to feel good about the, the partnership bit more than necessarily the valuation. Because you're right, all of them probably have some level of track record that's really admirable. And you can you know, probably call other founders that have worked with them, but it's, it's really got to be a fit. Um, I think that's the thing that sometimes gets overlooked. It's like, well, firm A is giving me a bigger valuation, bigger check. I don't know if that's always the right answer. And I always kind of also ask the question or, or, or try to get, I guess, to the deep down reasons why that company founder wants to raise capital and why yeah. they want to move so quickly. Um, because I've found that there's some things that maybe are deep rooted um, that are sometimes a little bit outside of maybe just wanting to sell a lot of products. It could be, there could be some other things that are going on that they feel um, that they have to keep up with the Joneses in this, in the sense. But I think with the CPG industry, when we're talking about that, I mean, it's, they're not necessarily zero sum games. You know, there, there's going to be multiple winners in these categories that are going to iterate off of each other, are going to have different positioning or whatever that it's not like you need to run as fast as you can and run through every wall possible. There should be an organic kind of ramp up that you feel trusted, that you feel is great, that you are confident before you go out and invite others into your party and, you know, and have different voices and, and things like that. Because I think if you don't have that initial kind of time in the market that is really mm. organic, I mean, and there are, I'm sure if somebody's listening, they're going to say, well, what about this scenario? What about, I, I get it. There's probably one-off things, but I think far and away in the CPG industry, I would love if people took a little bit longer and slower pace at the beginning to get a sense of like where they uh, fit and then go out and try to go crazy with some, some growth capital. But at the beginning, it's really about like understanding who the heck you are. Um, if you don't know that, it, it's tough. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's an interesting thing. And I obviously after on, it was acquired, spent some time, you know, post-transaction with Unilever and with Onnit. And, you know, you, you begin to understand quite a bit more about what's attractive to a lot of these strategics out there. You know, if you're thinking, if you're just visioning out 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when you potentially want to ready your business for that exit, um, there's a lot to be said about that slow and steady growth and that focus on winning in certain areas and not trying to get everything underneath the sun. Because if you pull every lever, I do think you're not going to be as attractive um, when you do go to market your business uh, potentially for an exit, right? If you if you're trying to run through to your point every wall, go into every category, be in every retailer, every sales channel um, as quickly as possible, um, you know some of those efforts are not going to work and they're going to fail. And all of a sudden, this great brand that you've built up, although really quickly, um, it's it's sort of been diminished. Um, and diluted a little bit, right? So I think there's a lot to be said about that methodical growth and really proving out this is a profitable business. The economics are great. Our engagement with the customers is awesome. We've done a really good job developing credibility in these areas. We win here. Um, that's going to be really attractive versus I'm you know, spraying money everywhere in every category. I'm for everyone. I think that becomes less attractive to you know a lot of the larger corporations that are really kind of looking for brands that are winning in just very specific areas, categories. Yeah. And those strategics, I think if you understand the biggest ones, I mean, they have legacy iconic brands that have been for a while that when they make these decisions to acquire these smaller upstart brands, like they're looking for consistency as well. Like they would 
like that brand to be in their portfolio for the next decades. It's not like yes. they're investing in something where like they're going to, you know, have it for a year or two or anything like that. So like if it's built on a house of cards or it's not built on this foundation that really is strong, it's not as attractive from maybe that partner. I mean, Unilever is a good example. I mean, they're not going out and buying on it because for the next five years, they see growth in it. They think this is a foundational brand that has a unique proposition in the market that we think is going to be around for quite a while. And we think we can help them you know, get to that point quicker and maybe even elevate it a little bit more, but sustain the relevance of that brand for a, a long period of time. And I, I think this kind of maybe transitions a little bit into that discussion around like maybe readying CPG brands for some of these exit um, opportunities, be it some M&A type thing, um, you know, number of different kind of buyers in the market today, or, you know, maybe the traditional IPO process. And maybe that's kind of scary right now. I don't know if people would want to maybe test those markets right now. Uh, but it's it's always on the map. You know, sometimes it makes sense to look at something like that. And and being that you kind of just went through one, I kind of want to get your thoughts on how you kind of approach that or how maybe a founder should approach some of that. And it maybe is from like, you know, getting reporting um, kind of structure going and, and kind of making sure that shirt up, maybe it's structural or organizational or whatever those are. But I think there's yeah. there's probably pillars that they need to get ready before they're thinking about um, approaching, you know, for sale or for some exit, be it an IPO. Yeah. And, and to your point, I mean, things are changing, obviously, right? Like what, what may be relevant and applicable today, who knows? You go five years from now, it's maybe it's a completely different strategic environment. Maybe it's a different public market environment. But I think a lot of it is predicates on what you were saying, that strong foundation, right? You, you're still kind of building this business and running this business as if it's gonna be standalone forever. So you really have to have built out core competencies across the business. And I think sometimes people think, you know, when you're, when you're going and selling the business or you're running a process, that you know, because that is an exhaustive thing. Well, I don't care whether you're going public or you're you're you're. It's an M&A event. It's a pretty consuming thing. So by that point, hopefully, you do have a CFO and somebody that's kind of quarterbacking that process because you still got to run the business <laughs> and you still got to deliver results. The worst thing that could happen is you go into market and your business starts tanking, right? And so making sure your business is set up to handle, I would say, that pressure of of that process is really important. So I think. By then, having that head of finance, that CFO, having really strong financials and numbers, having done the audits and the QVs and some of these other kind of positioning things that you have to do, I think that's really important. Um, but I think the other thing is, you know, really kind of trying to understand, you know, what the objective would be potentially of, of an exit. I think sometimes we get too far ahead of ourselves and we think that's exactly what we want. Um, but just like taking in growth equity, it's, I think it's a really important step-by-step -step process to go through. Like, what do we want to have happen? And I think there's definitely different realities. If you go public, there's a heavy compliance element to it. So to your point, do we have the infrastructure built out for it? Do we have, you know, are we gonna be able to go through PCOB audits? You know, are we gonna have to add some headcount in areas like financial reporting and SEC reporting and technical accounting and, and all this stuff? Because that's a completely different game versus you're readying for an M&A process. And I even was kind of, my mind was a little bit blown um, the last four years. And then I always thought it was really just about the results. But as you get into any of these things, it becomes 
it, especially if you've built a really strong business, the numbers are going to speak for themselves. So they're at the table. They like what you're doing in that regard. I think it's about what's the rest of the DNA of this business? How have you been managing manufacturing? You know, what type of ingredients are you using? What kind of claims are you making? Um, what is your regulatory process? Because there's a lot more downside risk now that you got to worry about, right? And I think that's where I was really, you know, almost, I shouldn't have been, but that's where I was surprised about where most of the effort was really on from a diligence perspective is looking for those reasons that there's, man, there's some really, some serious exposure here. So I would say you want to have, obviously, all these things kind of running on all cylinders, but don't be surprised if it's sort of the compliance and the regulatory side or, ingredients or claims or those are the things that can might trip you up so when you're thinking about your business and is it ready it really is your entire business that's going to be under the microscope not just the performance of the business yeah we're killing it we're growing year over year 20 30 percent you know ebitda is rocking it's also how are you institutionally built you know are you you know has there been things that have happened over the years that are going to come back and bite us so i think that's the part where i would say you, you definitely want to think about you know creating a, a team that can kind of run that for you. And that starts, I think, with a good CFO or a strong CFO. And then, you know, bringing on some good advisors to help you. I know it's I always kind of chuckle a little bit when people think you can kind of do it on your own. And I'm sure there are examples of of companies that, that it's happened, right? Like preemptively, someone comes out out of the woodwork and just throws an offer at you. But by and large, it's an effort. You know, it's an effort internally. It's an effort with your bankers, your lawyers, your advisors. And so, again, you really want that right team, a team that's going to represent you well, that's going to help you kind of prioritize things. Because the other thing, too, and I, I keep going back to it, but the business still has to, to be rocking. You yeah. still got to be hitting your numbers and you still got to perform well. And I think a lot of times I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it with with peers and, and other companies. You know, it becomes crippling. The, the amount of diligence, the questions, the meetings you have to go through. Um, if you're not built for it, it is really tough. It's tough on the business. And then what if a deal doesn't happen? It becomes pretty demoralizing um, for a company to kind of come back from. So I think you have to be built with really good foundation to your point. I mean, it's, it sounds like a lot of what we've talked about today is kind of getting back to the basics, fundamentals of a business, right? And I think if we do do that, and if that is where you focus, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, as a CEO, and you're, you're kind of channeling your teams to operate that way, you will win. You will win in this market. You're going to be successful. You're going to grow the business. You're going to grow it the right way. And those opportunities will, will come at you. And even for us, I mean, at Onnit, it wasn't something that we were necessarily seeking out. I think we, we always kind of were eyeing something at some point, but everything kind of had to get to a, to a really good place um, for us to be able to say, yeah, now it's time to go versus you know, I think if we had tried to do it sooner, it would not have been uh, not would have been, not been a good outcome or the outcome we would have wanted. I loved a few of the points you made. I mean, I think that most people that haven't, I, I don't think, gone through a few of these liquidity event type processes that like I've been lucky enough both on the buy side and sell side to be a part of like due diligence processes. And to your point, I was always surprised how much focus and questioning and kind of analysis had to do with the downside than the upside. Uh, I think that was always maybe just um, you know, taken for granted on the on the upside piece, like, hey, we can keep that machine going or whatever, but we need to understand the landmines and things that we just are not aware of that's not openly shared a lot of times in the market on the supply side or the 
you know, finance side or operational side that like, you know, is, is business practices that you don't necessarily go out and bark from the highest mountain about and say that you're, you're, you're doing it's, it's that they really need to understand that piece of the, of the pie. Um, so I think that is extremely important for people to understand that don't just think, you know, they're going to be um, looking at our shiny growth rates and they're going to be blinded by everything and you know, they're, they'll overlook all the other things or, or whatever. Um, yeah. And then, you know, on the, on the other thing about just how much work these things are um, to your point, I mean, you have to keep the ship running and you have to have somebody constantly asking you for thousands of very intricate things that maybe you have um, somewhere, but you don't have them as well prepared as you should. And, and you know, you go down these rabbit holes of things, but that's distracting, especially as a CEO or, or any of your, you know, kind of leadership team to yeah. be switching gears constantly, you know, because especially in an environment like right now, where there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of chaos, a lot of like, you need to be on the fly and understanding like, what does this certain thing in the supply chain or certain aspect in the macroeconomic kind of environment, what is that meaning to us? Or what, what could that potentially cause us? And you have to be a, you know, kind of hyper like aware of things. And then you're also having to be like in the depths of some huge piece of documents or, or, or a process that it, it becomes, it comes daunting. It's like the, you know, burn the candle both ends, but in a professional sense, it's not like you're trying to be like, you know, par, party hard, work hard type of situation. Yeah, this is no, like, uh, yeah. You're working hard and you're working harder. And it's like, this is seven days a week for sometimes, you know, months and months and months. And like you said, it might come to the point where after all that work, they decide they walk away and you're left with, a distraction for a long period of time and you're still there looking for how do we you know kind of progress so it's it goes back to what we're saying i mean you have to really go back to the fundamentals you really have to go back to like can i build a standalone business that i don't need anybody else now if somebody comes yeah. and it's the perfect deal great but if it is people just constantly kind of peeking in and, and you know distracting you you have to, you have to understand that that maybe is is not the right time for all of this or, or whatever. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just think that like uh, there's a lot of that stuff that I think if you haven't if you don't know it, you don't know it type of a scenario. And, and I think that you know what we're kind of mentioning, I think is is super important for a lot of these founders. And then something we hadn't really talked about is something that Barry Turner, the co-founder of Lenny and Larry's, we yeah. just had a conversation. We talked about it and he said you know, the day that I exited the business was the worst day of my life. And he said it was because every day for years and years and years and years, I woke up and I was extremely excited to go to work and, and kind of crush any challenges and grab any growth opportunities possible. And then all of a sudden, somebody bought my business and and I can't do that anymore. And it, 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 it hurts you. And I think people need to, you know, founders need to ask themselves. And, and I know there's sometimes, you know, you got to stay on for a little bit of time and there's all those scenarios in terms of there, but like, what are you going to do next? Ah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what, like, what are you going to do next? Cause like, I think you have to, you have to ask yourself that. Cause sometimes, especially when these are like earlier exits where, um, you might be tied up into maybe some non-compete for a while that like you're taken away from your passion. And, and maybe it's not worth, you know, everything, but I don't, you gotta, you kind of have to approach those things. I think sometimes. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it was tough. I mean, I think any founder, I mean, it is your baby. And even for the people that were fortunate enough, like myself to go along for that ride. I mean, 
it, it, what, it is weird. I mean, you, you've, you've been sort of fighting for something for so long and um, been an advocate for the business. You've been entrenched in that business. And then that day comes and you should be happy. And, but I think you have to come to terms with that, you know, before. And if you're not ready for that, yeah, keep going, man. But yeah, it is, it's definitely, um, I can't even imagine what it's like as, a, as the founder and as the, uh, the person that started it. That's a different feeling. Uh, but I know as, the, as, a, as somebody that was just a part of the journey, a small part of that journey. Yeah. I mean, you have deep feelings for this business, the people in the business. And I think that's why who you sell to is also equally important, right? Like um, if, it, if it matters to you, what your legacy is going to be, what the brand's legacy it is, you, you do want to make sure that it's going to the, the right, the right company, right? That they care about your customers. They care about the products. I think we all read about sort of the, the flip side of that, you know, it's all of a sudden things change, the products change, the marketing changes, um, you lose a little bit of that audience. I mean, I think that's something that goes through the, the the back of every founder's, you know, head when you're kind of confronting this this transaction, right? Which is going to be life changing in so many ways. But this was your this was a body of work that may have been your entire life. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's a really big daunting decision uh, that you know you can't you can't underscore probably how it's going to make you feel now, five years from now, ten years from now. Who knows? When you ask him. 10 years from now, he may have a maybe a much different perspective or an evolved perspective of what he thinks about it or anybody. You ask Aubrey, you know, about on it after after 10 years, I think it'll be interesting. But I think, you know, going back to your point, I guess, around I did want to kind of connect the dot with the first question you asked me, the strategic CFO. I think that's a big reason why when you do get to that point where you're ready to kind of professionalize the accounting and finance function and you're ready to take the business up a level in terms of growth and investing in the growth. You need that person. I can't, you know, understate that or overstate that enough because even when it came to like the audit process, I think had we had sort of a traditional CFO that was just sort of face buried only in the numbers, there's a lot of things you're going to get asked about. You've got to have that perspective. And if you weren't connecting the dots along the way, the last three, four, five years, you know, you're going to be a burden to your business partners. <laughs> if you're constantly going to so-and-so, hey, I need this, I need this. So I think like, that's another thing to kind of think about um, is you're kind of sequencing out the the design of your business and the org. It's like, when's the right time to bring in that person? Maybe it's a few years before you go do that. No, I totally agree. No, I mean, I appreciate this conversation. I thought it was great. Um, I loved <laughs> kind of how we got all over the place, I think, in, on the spectrum of these conversations. Yeah. So it was great. So I do. I just really appreciate you taking the time out of your day, giving uh, your insights to my community. So thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. I mean, it's not often uh, people want to hear from an accountant, <laughs> but we're, we're past tax season, so maybe they'll, they'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have any comments or questions about anything I discussed during it, open the podcast episode notes and click on any of my social media account links to reach out to me directly. 